a note about a couple of things. Uh, Scott and I will both, uh, in the next couple weekends, be gone. Next Sunday, I'll be speaking at a men's conference. A friend of mine invited me to come to his church uh, and do that. So I'll be gone next weekend for that. And then the weekend after, Scott's preaching next Sunday morning. Then the week after that, Scott's going to be speaking at uh, New Hope Community Church's uh, youth retreat. So uh, we appreciate the congregation giving us permission to do these uh, extra opportunities of using our gifts. And uh, you'll be in good hands, of course, next uh, Sunday morning. And then you'll be stuck with me when Scott's gone on March 15th. So that's what's happening. I was visiting this morning some of our Sunday school classes. Um, uh, Jeff Minder was teaching the adults in the auditorium. And I went to one class, and, and as I was leaving, somebody asked me, a child asked me a question I've never been asked before in my life. The question was, why are you so quiet? <laughs> it was astounding. Number 609. Let's sing this together, shall we? Let's sing. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal all our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. No friend like Him is so high and holy. No, not one. No, not one. And yet no friend is so meek and lowly. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. There's not an hour that He is not near us. No, not one. No, not one. No night so dark but His love can cheer us. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Did ever saint find this friend forsake him? No, not one. No, not one. Or sinner find that he would not take him. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Was there a gift like the Savior given? No, not one. No, not one. 
Will he refuse us a home in heaven? No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. For our time together this morning in the Bible, I want to prove to you from the Scriptures that those words that we just sang are true and good and whole. Uh, the text that's under consideration is from the, the Gospel of Matthew, so I'd like you to turn there if you, in your Bibles, if you would. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. We already read this morning that Jesus is a man of suffering, uh, familiar with sorrows. And uh, we're going to read from Matthew 2 about uh, that being true, or, or where that familiarity with suffering and sorrow begins. Matthew 2, verse 13. Three scenes. Follow along as I read. Here's scene one. When they, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Scene 2. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Scene 3. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called the Nazarene. Matthew begins his gospel in grand terms, does he not? He says, this is the beginning of Jesus the Messiah. This is the Genesis. This is the, the story of his arrival on earth. It is a, an event that is as cataclysmic as God calling the universe into existence in the first place. It's a new Genesis. He's the son of Abraham. He's the one through whom God is going to bless the whole world. He's the son of David. He's the royal son of all kings on the earth. God has chosen the sons of David to be uh, his special ruler. He was conceived of a virgin. He was uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, an angel gave him his name. His nickname is God with us. And when he's born, there's a star that appeared in the sky. Oh my goodness, who is this? 
this wonderful, majestic, mysterious, out-of-this-world baby. That's chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. But in the rest of chapter 2, notice he has a name. The angel gave him a name. But nine times in this text, his name is never used. He's just called the child. He's the child. He's the child. He's, uh, and he spends most of his time on the run, freeing from his murderous king and, and this even, his even worse son. He's at the center of what's happening here. I know that. But he is not acting. He is acted upon. He needs protection. I mean, the stars may have moved when he was born, but he is the lowly Jesus in this part of this passage. The first four chapters of Matthew introduce Jesus to us. He's from heaven. He's mysterious. He's full of glory. But that's not all he is. He is God with us in our sufferings and in our sorrows. This morning I want to walk you through these three scenes of this chapter. And I want to show you how Matthew connects Jesus to both the Old Testament story and to the brokenness of this world. We're going to see three images for Jesus or three things that his that his coming portends. He's, who is he? He's these three things. Now before I do that though, let me remind you uh, uh, of where we are here. Chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Matthew cover the earliest events of the life of Jesus. And five scenes, there's five scenes here, and all five of them have within them this Old Testament prophecy that the Matthew says, and so what was fulfilled through the prophet uh, was fulfilled. Uh, Jesus is, he fits the patterns and the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's the legitimate Messiah. Uh, Matthew has to make that argument. He has to make that argument because no one expected the legitimate Messiah to be crucified. Never imagined that would happen. Are we sure Jesus is the one? Oh yes, he's the one. No one expected the kingdom of the royal son of David to unfold like it did. So Matthew here is arguing for the legitimacy of Jesus based on how he fits the formula that God laid out in the Hebrew Scriptures. As if, it's as if Matthew's saying, here's the Old Testament, and it's got these fingerprints all over it, and in Matthew 1 and 2, oh, hey, they match. Here's, here's the fingers that match the fingerprints that are all over the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And in chapter 2, he makes uh, these three connections. Three things. First, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the new exodus. His coming brings the new exodus. The old exodus is told in the book of Exodus. Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Here's the new exodus, but Jesus is the focus of it. Uh, let's walk through the text, shall we? Uh, verses 13 and 14 tell us again about Joseph's obedience. We've seen this before. Joseph is the ideal disciple in the Old Testament. He obeys every command. You, you kind of see this in how Matthew writes this out. Uh, the, the parallelism. An angel of the Lord, verse 13, appeared to Joseph in a dream. What did the angel say? Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Then verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother, left for Egypt, and stayed there. Same language. Just to show you, Joseph is listening and he's obeying. He's the ideal disciple here. God commands, Joseph moves. What's new here in the text, in this part of the passage, is the connection that Matthew makes between God calling Joseph and Jesus and Mary out of Egypt 
and God calling the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Verse 15 says, And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. This quotation is from Hosea 11. And it's perplexing. Matthew writes in, in terms of fulfilled prophecy, but uh, in chapter 11 of Hosea, Hosea is not prophesying. He is not speaking forward about something that's going to happen in the future. Actually, in Hosea 11, he's thinking backward about the generations of people that came before him, the Israelites that God had called out of Egypt through Moses. So then how can Matthew say that in the future the prophecy fulfilled when Hosea was thinking about the past and not the future? How does that work? This is not the way we usually think about prophecy. Usually we think about a prophet as someone who speaks about the future. So in chapter 2, we saw this right with Micah. Where's the Messiah going to be born? Micah says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then 600 years later, guess what? The Messiah was born in Bethlehem. These straight-line prophecies. That's usually the way we think about prophecy. Well, how in what terms here is Hosea prophesying? What's happening here is that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees the life of Jesus is not just about fulfilling these straight-line Micah-Bethlehem-like prophecies, but also fitting Old Testament patterns. There are patterns of how God worked in the Old Testament with His people, and Jesus fulfills those patterns. He's reliving here the life of the nation of Israel. He's the new and better Israel. Out of all the people of the world, God called the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, as his own people. But they failed. They failed to live up to his own purposes. So now he sent his own son. And his own son is going to follow the same path that they took. But this time he's not going to fail. He's going to succeed in every way. Jacob and his sons fled into Egypt in Genesis 46 to escape from a famine. Now Joseph and Jesus and Mary are fleeing to Egypt to escape Herod. And just as God called the Israelites up out of Egypt, so, Jesus, so God called Jesus up out of Egypt. Parallel. Uh, we're going to see this even more uh, when we continue in the Gospel of Matthew. The comparison that Matthew draws here is based on this son language. The son language. In the book of Exodus, Moses told, uh, God told Moses to approach Pharaoh and, and about letting the Israelites go. And, and there he collectively called the people his son. Exodus 4.22, look at it. It says, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. God's calling the whole nation his son. And according to Hosea 11.1, he did this because he loved them. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The nation is, is God's son, and now the Lord Jesus is God's son. Both went into Egypt, both were called out of Egypt. Here with Jesus is the new exodus. Now, why does this matter to us? Well, uh, we see here some of the connecting ligaments of the Bible. We see how the Bible's put together. Look at the story that God has woven together. He's got his people in the Old Testament and he's got his son in the New Testament. And that's, that's it's good to see how the Bible holds together this way. 
The other thing we might think about this is we see the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Here's the first place in Matthew that Jesus is called the Son of God, and the person who calls him Son is the Father. God the Father identifying Jesus as his Son. There's the wonder of this relationship. Here are Jesus' credentials as the Son of God. But it's actually his credentials as a sufferer that I am interested in here. Joseph and Mary and Jesus fled to Egypt in the night, the text says. Uh, During the night. Why? uh, why? There's a couple of possibilities about this. Maybe, Maybe Joseph woke up from this dream where the angel of the Lord directed him what to do. And he shakes it. Mary, wake up, Mary. Wake up, Mary. We've got to go. We've got to go now. We've got to go. What? What are you talking about? God told me, Mary, we've got to go. Herod is trying to kill Jesus. That wakes her up, right? First thing she does, where's Jesus? He's safe. She looks to see, is he safe? He's asleep. You've got to wake him up, and we've got to go now. Pack some things. Let's go. We've got to go. Maybe they went at night because they were trying to sneak out of town quietly. Maybe, maybe, maybe Joseph didn't wake up in the middle of the night. He had the dream. They, they spent the next day very quietly preparing, and they left at night so that no one saw them. Either way, can you imagine? Mary's carrying Joseph, uh, Jesus, or Joseph's carrying Jesus, and he's, I don't know, 18 months old. Shh. just occurred to me, maybe they left at night because that's when Jesus would have been asleep. And some of you like to travel when your baby's sleeping, right? <laughs> you know, start at 11 p.m. and drive all night. The kid will be asleep. It'll be great. I'm not sure the car seat on the camel was that comfortable. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> they run. They run out of town. According to the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees, in 2017, there were 65 million people in the world forcibly displaced from their homes uh, because of persecution, conflict, violence, or human rights violations. 65 million people on the run. Uh, this is a story we, we hear about all the time, right? We see the refugees. Um, in, in some circles, we're taught to be afraid of them. Because you know what they all are, terrorists. They're all just terrorists coming to kill us. So we should be afraid of them. And then in some circles, we see these terrible conditions. That people floating on uh, overcrowded makeshift rafts, washing up on shore. Uh, they've lost some in the night, in, in the ocean. They, they don't have anything but the clothes on their backs. And they settle into camps that are poorly managed and riddled with crime. That's not exactly what's happening here. So what we see in the news is not exactly what's happening here. There were about a million Jews in Egypt during Jesus' day. Uh, They had settled communities. Some of them had been there for generations. It was a common place for refugees, uh, for Jews to find refuge from Palestine. Um, They would go to Egypt. Laws were different back then. Borders were different back then. But Jesus lived in a very cruel and a very dangerous 
world. The stars may have moved at his birth, but he still had to run for his life into a foreign land. Here's the lowly Jesus, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. God brought him out like he brought out his people Israel. Jesus is the new exodus. Secondly, though, this text tells us that Jesus is the end of the exile. He's the end of the exile. Verses 16 through 18 are about that horrible murder of those baby boys in Bethlehem. There's no other records anywhere about this slaughter, and and many New Testament scholars, of those who are inclined to to doubt the veracity of the text, uh, many this 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 couldn't have happened. This is impossible for it to happen. There's no other records. Bethlehem was a small town. It was on the backside of the Roman Empire. Uh, Herod was a crazy king. That probably there were between 12 and 20 baby boys killed in this execution. Uh, and that's not even close to Herod's worst crime. It didn't really make the news. Uh, Frederick Bruner said that we should see in this a connection between Herod's rejection of Jesus in, uh, earlier in chapter 2 and his cruelty to those infants. There is a connection. <laughs> Bruner says, kill the child, uh, hate the child, and kill the children. Uh, maybe that follows the logic of, of Paul in Romans chapter 1. Uh, l- look what Romans 1 says. Um, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, reject God, so God gave them human beings over to a depraved mind so that they did, so they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. It's called the Internet. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They stand and applaud. If in Matthew, the Magi are spiritual outsiders who come to Jesus, Herod shows what happens when you go the other way, away from God and into this wickedness. Here's an example of what Paul is arguing in in Romans 1. He's arguing, if you reject God, this is the result. This is what your culture, this is what your society will look like. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, that seems a little harsh. I mean, I know know people who aren't Christians, and and they're they're decent neighbors. I, I don't know... As far as I know, none of them have ever ordered the execution of between 12 and 20 babies. Seems, seems um, the Herod path isn't one that we all have taken. Except, look at that paragraph again that Paul wrote in Romans 1 and, and see if you can find yourself there. As far as I know, there are no murderers here. But can you find yourself anywhere in that paragraph? Uh, greed? Envy? 
gossip, slander? Has anybody been boastful recently? Maybe this paragraph isn't as far away from your life as you would like to think it is. Maybe you're more like Herod than you are like Jesus. Why didn't God stop this slaughter? That's what I would like to know. Why, why didn't he warn the rest of the parents uh, of Bethlehem about what was happening? So the soldiers show up. And, well, we don't have any kids. No boys that age here. No, sorry. Huh. That's a good question. When you ask that question, of course, uh, you know that tragedies like this are not um, unique to this page of the Bible. It's part of human history. Listen to what Brian Urquhart wrote. Uh, he wrote an essay in 2002, so right at the turn of the millennium in 2002, the New York Review of Books. Listen to this paragraph. During the 20th century, there were not only two world wars, but at least six major cases of genocide. The mass killings of Armenians by Turks in 1915, of Jews and other groups such as the Gypsies by Hitler, of Cambodians by Khmer Rouge, by the Khmer Rouge, of the Kurds of northern Iraq by Saddam Hussein, of the Tutsi of Rwanda by the Hutu, and of Croats, Muslims, and the Albanians of Kosovo by the Serbs. In all cases, except the Kosovo Albanians, the international community and its Western leaders failed to act in time. So this is bad, what's here? This is bad. And it's nothing new or nothing that unusual. This is the world into which Jesus was born. He's a man who is familiar with pain. Matthew quotes the, Jer- uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah. It's another pattern prophecy here, not a direct prophecy. Here's an event that happened in the life of the nation of Israel that mimics what happened here in the life of Jesus. Now the quotation is from Jeremiah 31. So 1,000 years or so, mm, yeah, about 1,000 years or so, a little less, after Moses led the people out of Egypt and 500 years or so after David ruled in, in, in Jerusalem, uh, the nation of Israel had disobeyed God so poorly. They had broken covenant so much with God that they experienced God's discipline. And the armies of the Babylonians came and invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and um, uh, carried the Jews off into exile. And Jeremiah depicts it this way. A voice is heard in Ramah. Now, where's Ramah? Ramah is about six miles northeast um, of Jerusalem. And Ramah was the, 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 order, the, was the place um, where they organized the exiles. They would gather them at Ramah and they would get them together, from, process them there in order to send them to exile in Babylon. A voice is heard in Ramah. What's that voice doing? It's weeping and mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children. Uh, Rachel is the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, two of the patriarchs, the twelve patriarchs of Israel. Rachel's story is told in Genesis. She died giving birth to Benjamin. And she's depicted here as the mother of the nation, weeping. Uh, We do this in political cartoons. Sometimes you'll see the Statue of Liberty weeping. If the Statue of Liberty in a political cartoon is weeping, you know she's, she's being depicted there as a representative woman from the, our nation and something terrible is going on if the Statue of Liberty is depicted as weeping. Well, Rachel here stands here as the, a representative of all the mothers of the nation. And she's in Ramah. Actually, 
uh, her tomb may have been at Ramah. That may be where Rachel's tomb was. Rachel weeping for her children. She's crying because her sons and daughters are being carried off into exile. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. Try as much as you want. These mothers will not stop weeping over their lost children. Some of you know exactly what this is like because you have lost children. But why would Matthew quote this passage? Why would he do this? Ironically, uh, Jeremiah 31 is actually a passage of hope. You wouldn't think that. Matthew quoted verse 15 from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 15. Listen, uh, look at uh, Jeremiah 31, 16. So the verse right after. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there's hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And later in Jeremiah 31, he says this, this lengthy passage, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah preaches to the people and he says, this is terrible. This is terrible. Weeping, weeping. Weeping, our, the children are being carried off into exile. This is horrible. But, but, I have good news for you. There's a new covenant coming. And this new covenant, you won't be able to break the new covenant like you broke the old covenant. Because God, his, his, we're, He's going to change our hearts. He's going to forgive all of our sins. There's hope, even in the midst of this terrible weeping. Now take that here, and what, what's Matthew telling us by quoting from this passage? He's saying to us, oh, here's some women in Bethlehem that are weeping, but Jesus has come. The one who's going to bring in the new covenant. Jesus is the ultimate answer to the exile. He's going to bring this weeping. He's going to bring ultimately all weeping to an end because he's going to bring the new covenant. Now, what does this have to do with us? Again, I ask that question. Exile is an image in the Bible that it uses to describe us as human beings, our natural spiritual condition. We are naturally, because of our sin, alienated from God. We're like the prodigal son, far from home. We're like the Israelites, down in Egypt, away from God's land. We live outside of the Garden of Eden, the environment that God made for us to enjoy. We live in a broken world. What's it like living out on the outside? What's it like living in an exiled land? It's terrible. The world is ruled by people like Herod. It's terrible. If you think about it too, I imagine that most of the things that you do, most of your great failures... Most of your sins that you commit 
have to do with the fact that you're trying to fix or you're trying to comfort yourself from the consequences of living on the outside, of living in this broken world. Life on the outside in the exile is hard, so you're angry. You yell at people because you're angry. Or you worry a lot about it. Or you comfort yourself with chocolate. Or you comfort yourself with pornography. You medicate yourself with hours of television and video games. You spend a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to fix this sense of spiritual exile. And none of those things are the answer. The answer is found in this child. This child who almost got swept up in the rage of King Herod. This child is the one who's going to call people to come to him and find rest. You cannot undo your own exile. You can't. But Jesus does. Now this is closely related to the third thing that, that, that Matthew says about Jesus. In verses 19 through 23, the text tells us that Jesus is the Savior from Nowheresville. Uh, that's originally a Greek word. It's not. It's not. I'm just kidding. Jesus is the Savior from Nowheresville. So the angel speaks to Joseph in a dream, and same pattern, he immediately responds. It seems like they were going to go back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the place where the shepherds had come to worship in, where the wise men had found him. Bethlehem seemed a good place to go back and settle if Jesus really is this um, unusual child from God. Bethlehem is a good place to raise him. That seems like that, that's where they were going to go. But um, Bethlehem is ruled by Herod's son, Archelaus, who is even more violent than his father. So Joseph is worried. God warns him in another dream. Just He'd warned the wise men in a dream about Herod. Now he warns Joseph in a dream. Same wording there. Uh, so they go to Nazareth. Matthew doesn't mention it like Luke does, but uh, this is their original hometown, and that's where they go. And then Matthew says, So it was fulfilled was what was said, so it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is difficult because there's no text in the Bible that says that Messiah would be a Nazarene. It's odd here too how Matthew says. Do you notice he says prophets, prophets plural, not prophet singular. Up to this point in time he said prophet, prophet singular. Now he says prophets. What's going on here, Matthew? There are a couple of good explanations. Most of them have to do with the idea that Matthew seems to be pulling together from a couple of different passages, uh, a couple of different sources. He seems to be drawing from this idea... um, like that Isaiah prophesied, that Jesus would come from a place, the Messiah would come from a place of obscurity. We read in Matthew 53 this morning, verse 2. Listen to Isaiah 53, 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was unimpressive looking. Um, You've seen movies about Jesus that have Jesus in them. We've gotten better over the years. Jesus is no longer a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Swede. That's good. It's a step in the right direction. But still, in these films, he's just darkly handsome. Mm, that's not quite right either. There's nothing external about him that would attract your attention. 
That would certainly be true from somebody from Nazareth. Nazareth. Nazareth is nowheresville. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. That's what Nathaniel said. When he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come on. What would come to your mind if I told you that our church, we we're going to uh, renovate, and if, if that, that we had hired an exclusive interior designer for the church, and she hails from Hogsnaggle, West Virginia? You don't know where Hogsnaggle, West Virginia is, but you're immediately thinking to yourself, Hogsnaggle does not sound like the place of contemporary design. I don't know why you're so stuck up thinking about flyover country and how no one wants to live there. Hog, snaggle, West Virginia. Well, Jesus of Nazareth? It'd be so much more impressive if Jesus of Bethlehem. Oh, yeah, yeah, David. Jesus of Bethlehem. We think about David when we think of Bethlehem. Jesus of Bethlehem sounds so much better than Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe Jesus, uh, Matthew is connecting with the promises from the prophets that God's salvation would come from something small, something somewhere unexpected. Remember, it was Jesus himself who said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Nazareth is a mustard seed type of town. Or, or here's another possibility, maybe Matthew is thinking about Isaiah 11.1. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. You know, Jesse would be David's father. Remember at the exile when they're carried off into Babylon, the David tree chopped down. The kingdom is over. There's no kings. The tree is, is chopped down. There's nothing left of David's line but a stump. But, Isaiah says, from that stump... A branch is going to, you know what this is like, this is annoying, isn't it? You cut down a tree and these branches keep coming up out of the stump. There's going to be a branch that's going to come up out of this stump. Supposedly, after the exile, there was a group of David's descendants and they settled in this place that they called Nazareth. You know, the Hebrew word for branch is Netzer. They called their home, their new home, Branch Town. Branch town. And they had it in their mind that the Messiah was going to come from Branch town, from Nazareth. No one believed them. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No, nothing's going to come from Branch town. But Jesus is the Savior from Nowheresville. And he saves people from Nowheresville. He grew up and spent his life with outsiders, with the poor, with the forgotten the diseased, the outcast. These are Jesus' people. He lived with them his whole life, and then he rescued them. This passage reminds me a little bit of a, of a story I heard about a children's uh, group who was putting on a Christmas play, and their teacher thought at the end to give everybody a, an important role. She wrote out a sentence based on Emmanuel, uh, of God is with us. She gave her, her students uh, cards. Everybody had a letter on it. It's spelled out, G-O-D, God is now here. God is now. It's good Christmas news. God is now here. Unfortunately, when the little children got up there to, to assemble and, and line up, they got too close. 
And the last, last, last group of children got too close. And when they held up their signs, they said proudly, God is nowhere. <laughs> that is not a comforting Christmas message. And yet for 30 years or so, that's where the Son of God was. And that's sometimes what it feels like when the broken world buffets you in moments of sorrow and suffering. Where's God? God feels like he's nowhere. This passage is here to remind us that the Lord Jesus is really, truly a man of sorrows, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. That's a great help to us. It's a great source of comfort to us. When we talk as Christians about having a personal relationship with Jesus, we talk about the fact that he is with us. This good news. God is now here, the lowly Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful that these, this picture of the Lord Jesus that you have given us in Matthew is, is um, comprehensive. We see him in glory and now we see him in a world that is full of sorrow and suffering and troubles. That's good news, Father, because we spend a lot of time singing about your glory and hoping for the day that that we'll see your glory and we spend an awful lot of our days suffering and in sorrow. How thankful we are to you for the Lord Jesus who suffered. Not just through the brokenness of this life, but on the cross for us. As we turn our, uh, um, our hearts and minds to um, the Lord's Supper, this morning, I pray that you would help us to remember the wonder and the beauty and the good news of the fact that Jesus has come to be with us and then to suffer for us, rising again, so that someday we might join in his resurrection and his glory. Help us to focus and think aright, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we sing again of our suffering Savior.